So our question today is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Um, and it comes from John chapter 6. And we'll read a, uh, a little bit of the context and then dig in a little deeper. So I kind of approach this question of, of Lord, to whom shall we go? Uh, from the... Co- from the idea of, well, how did we get to this question? How do we get to this question being asked by Peter of the Lord? Um, and so, to begin, let's look in John chapter 6, starting in verse 66, where it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So at first, you know, just reading those short verses, you can can understand one thing pretty much from the beginning is that this wasn't a question necessarily expecting a straight answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question, Lord, there's nowhere for us, no, there's nowhere else for us to go. You are the one that has eternal life. So where would we go? Where else could we go to find eternal life except to you? But, you know, the, the question... Uh, the question that... Uh, I asked was, well, how did we get to this question being asked by, you know, why, why would Peter be asking this? So, the larger context here in John, in simplest terms, our Lord had just made his point the hard way. But he did so for a purpose. If you look back up in verse 22 of chapter 6, it says... On the following day, so that you guys go, well, the day following what? Well, if you look up at the beginning of chapter 6, you have the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and so that, in and of itself, that miracle stirred a lot of attention. And to some extent, when Jesus of Nazareth got into his public ministry... He was a spectacle. Now, the idea of a spectacle is to have something to grab your attention, to draw in as many people as you can, to make them say, well, this is different. This is something I want to see what's going on. But the idea of a spectacle is to grab your attention and then you've got to hold on to it. The miracles and the way that Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee spoke of the law and of God were extremely different. And they clearly demonstrated power and just something different than what the Jews were seeing at that time. But with this spectacle, you as the spectator or the Jews in that day as the spectators, they have to decide, is this real? Is this something I really need to pay attention to? Or is this just a scam? Is it a ruse? Is it just all hype? I mean, we see spectacles 
all the time. You know, some big event is supposed to draw in the attention. And the next thing you're supposed to do is usually to what? Buy something, right? So, I mean, but that's, it's, to, to some extent, it's no different here. Jesus was, you know, he started out, he, he wanted to keep things a little more subtle. You know, the water turned to wine. He, he didn't want that to become such a big thing. But then at some point, he became a spectacle, and he knew that, and he was doing that through the ways that he spoke and the power that he demonstrated. So, and in fact, the larger context of John is asking the question, who is this man? If you look over in John chapter 7, in the next chapter... In John chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. By reading the larger context, I had forgotten this particular point. At the beginning, even the leaders of the, of the Jews were like, I'm not going to say anything because he's obviously demonstrating power. He's obviously speaking different. And it says here that the people know, well, you know, if he was fake, the leaders would just stomp him down really quickly. They would, they would punch holes through him. They would show that he was a charlatan, that he's just a, you know, a scam artist. But the, even the lay people, you know, the common Jews are like, well, the leaders aren't stomping him down. So is this the Christ? I mean, he's doing things that they said the, the, the Messiah would do. And if you continue there in chapter 7, verse 28, and then Jesus cried as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me. And you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he also sent me, he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, this is another rhetorical question, will he do more signs? than these which this man has done? I mean, they're saying, when, this, when, the, when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more than what this man's been doing? Because this guy's doing a whole lot of stuff, and the way he's talking, and the leaders, they're not... So the, the whole question here in the context of John is, who is this man? Because he's making a spectacle of himself. He's speaking boldly. Here he's speaking boldly in the temple. Who is this really, the Christ? That debate was being had right at the beginning of his ministry. And so he was. So now let's go back here in chapter 6 and get some of our context, starting in verse 22. On the following day, when people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered... And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks, feeding the 5,000. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, 
They also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They saw the disciples leave without Christ. But the, just above verse 22 is where the Lord walked on the water and joined them in the boat. But the, the multitudes didn't see that. But they're like, well, Lord, how did you come here? And so there's our setting. But then Jesus starts into a different topic in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus acknowledges the spectacle that what, of what had happened yesterday. You ate and were filled. I fed 5,000 people yesterday with just a small amount, and you ate were filled. But he uses that to make a point in verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. He says, don't, don't, don't come looking for me just to get more food. Yes, it, yes I'll acknowledge that it, it happened. But, but if that's your only reason for coming, that's not, I'm, going to, I'm here to tell you that's not why you should be here. You should be here looking here for the food which endures to everlasting life. And then the, the multitude say, then they said to him, what shall we do that maybe we work the works of God? If that's the works of God, we would love to have it. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He's saying, believe in me. The work you need to do is to believe in me. I have your attention. Listen to me. Now, if you're, and so they say, okay. In verse 30, therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from, the hev from heaven to eat. And so it's at this point, Jesus has set them up. Set them up to make his point and led them to this point. But he's going to make a hard point. And the question is, why? It's because when you get and you have a spectacle, when you have the multitudes coming and they're listening to you because of the things that you've done, the things that you said, you're going to have several different kinds of people. You're going to have those who are, well, all of them are interested because they're paying attention. But where does their interest lie? Are they just interested in the physical things, in the physical bread? Or are they interested in the deeper meaning of what he's saying? So he's about to make some points, and he's really going to make them think. So here we go. In verse 32. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then following in this line of, this line of thought, then the multitude say, Lord, give us this bread. And then 
He sets them up. So here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to make his point the hard way. And verse 35 is where it starts. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. So then we move to this next first reaction by some of the Jews, where they say in verse 41, then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. No self-respecting leader of the Jews is going to declare to himself, to declare that they are the bread of heaven. Now they may say that I'm a mouthpiece of God, I'm representing the law, let me explain to you a more perfect understanding of the law that you can't seem to understand, but I've figured out. But they're never going to say, I am the bread that came from heaven. I am the manna. The manna that came from heaven really wasn't from heaven. I am from heaven. Without a doubt, Jesus is saying exactly who he is, that he is from God, on a mission from God. God sent him, which means I am God. I'm more than just a prophet. And they're scoffing at that idea. Because in verse 42, they say, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, (coughs) I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They shall be taught by God. I am God teaching you here. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Then he goes into his statement again. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. They didn't live forever. In fact, they had rejected God, and that's why they stayed in the wilderness for all those 40 years. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. All right. Now we're getting into the hard. We're getting into the hard point. He just said, what? I am the bread and whoever eats my flesh shall have everlasting life. What? The spectacle just turned into something different. It just turned into something. He, 
He's being serious. He's not one who jokes. He demonstrates power, and he's saying, what? Who is this man? What is this man? Who does he think he is? Because even if you're not one of the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you're still saying, what? What did he just say? Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He's, saying, he's not saying these things out. No, he's saying these things in the synagogue with hundreds of Jews, including tens, maybe even hundreds of Jewish leaders. And he's saying things that it's, it's just different. The priest ate of the meat that was sacrificed to God as part of their sustenance. But you're, the, so is he making some connection to sacrificing? What is he saying? I'm not understanding this here. They're just trying to comprehend. He fed us yesterday with a very small amount, and 5,000 of us ate. We've seen him do other things. He speaks differently than the... Than the but this is a little... I'm not, I'm not so sh- sure I'm interested in this man anymore. Or at least some of them had to say that. Because verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man descend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. I'm speaking to you about things of the spirit, not really of the flesh. And they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Therefore, I have said to you and no one can, that no one can come to me unless he has been granted to him by the Father. And then we come back to the original context that was from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. At this point, he lost spectators, right? He lost the spectators. This, now, he gained followers, yes. As it says later there in, in chapter 7, we already look. Because they noticed that the the leaders of the synagogue, they weren't stomping him down. Now, they tried and they tried. There's, okay, let, you know, we talk about, okay, here's just another group. They came up with an argument. Let's go talk to this Jesus of Nazareth and see what he says about that. And every time they go away kind of with their tail between their legs or just quiet and they, they don't know what to say. 
But the apostles, including Peter, say, you know. So the actual real context is, did I offend you by saying this? And so Peter's like, and the other apostles, they've already discussed among themselves. I I may not exactly understand what he said. There seems to be indication that the apostles are like, well, he was talking about that. And I'm still not sure exactly what he meant. But nobody does what he does. Nobody. Nobody does it. He has got to be the Christ. So I'm just going to stick with it. Do I offend you by saying this? And then I'll just, you can just see, you know, you've seen it in the movies where the spectacle comes and then something happens and they're all disappointed and the crowds just dissipate. And they may be left with one or two. So if you have... Literally hundreds. 5,000 people were fed, and then you still have, let's go find this man. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee just to find this man again. Let's see what else he can do. Let's see what else we might get. We got food yesterday. Who knows? We might see somebody get healed. We might see, uh, maybe he's going to you know, do something and, I don't know, cause a person to rise off the ground. We don't know what. He's a spectacle. But Jesus knew, he's like, you didn't come here. You didn't come here to hear me. You came here to see what I was going to do next. So I have to make a point, and I'm going to make a point. It's going to scare some of you. It's going to say, whatever the spectacle is, I'm not that interested. I don't want to eat, partake of his flesh. I just, they're, they're only up here on the, the, the physical. But I was like, no, this is it. This is the person. He's different. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to stick with him. And that's why Peter and the other disciples, where else are we going to go? These Peter and these 11 other very common men, uneducated, even got a tax collector among them, that those are going to be his witnesses. In fact, if you flip over just a couple chapters more, he's got an even, even lower person than these apostles He has this blind man in chapter 9 who he healed. He he caused him to see again. And this, in this context of who is this man, is an opportunity for saying, okay, let's grab this man who was healed, the Pharisees. um, And he healed him on the Sabbath, above all else. Okay, we got it. He healed him on the Sabbath. I don't know what's going on, but he healed, they say, they're saying that he healed this man on the Sabbath. And so he, the, the blind man, in the, in, in starting in verse 13, uh, actually verse 15, it says, The Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight and said to him, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed and I see. In verse 16, it says, Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This, is, this man is not from God, because he, he, does, he does not keep the Sabbath. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there, is a, there was a division among him. And they said to the blind man, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. And then we know, you know, they go get his parents. They're like, you know, Is this your son? Was he blind? So yes, he he he's our son. Well, what do you say? How how's he? How can he see now? Well, 
He's old enough. Let him talk. What? No. Let him answer. Really? Yes, they were really like that. Because, verse 22, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So they again called the blind the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. And so here we have this man who is blind from birth. And he says, but he's heard the law his whole life. He's heard the teachings his whole life. He's not been educated as the Pharisees. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. He said all that stuff few days ago about being the bread of life. And he said that the manna didn't come from heaven. We are Moses' disciples. Let's just make this clear. We're not with this Jesus of Nazareth, but you, you must be. And then the witness of this, this man is just amazing. It reminds me very much of the servant of Naaman who said, if he had wanted you to go dip in these waters, would you, would you have not done it? If he had you done this grand thing, would you have not done it? And this blind man, he doesn't have any reason to be bold, other than the fact that he can see now, which makes him quite bold. Verse 30 says, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now you think of the, you think of the uh, uh, apostles, as they're seeing what happened in chapter 6. And the reasoning they're going through is the exact same reasoning this man is going through. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, you are teaching, and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. You were born infirmed, unperfect, you were born blind. Obviously, you had sinned from birth, or your parents had sinned, and you're trying to teach us. He's like, It's simple. It is simple. I can't see. I couldn't see. I can see. This man did it. Therefore, this man has to be from God. There's your story. There's your, there's your evidence. It's over. But it can't be. It can't be. Because he didn't come talk to us first. He didn't tell us how great we've been doing holding the law and saying, now, here we go, boys, we're going to go take over the world. 
He's ridiculing us from the very beginning. Saying we don't know. You know, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you have heard it said. That's just code for you've heard the Pharisees say, but I'm going to tell you that's not right. and, And this is what you should really think about it. They knew what he meant. So it's that whole context. The whole context of John is making, through the Holy Spirit, is making this divine argument through storytelling and witnesses of saying, this is the Christ. And these very basic Jews who weren't formally educated could see it. The apostles could see it. The blind man who was healed could see it. And their rhetorical question in chapter 6 where he says, verse 67, it says, do you want to go away? And the answer is quite simple. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There, that's it. That's all there is. So the spectators were separated by Jesus making his point. Those who were just interested in the spectacle went away. Now, Lord willing and with the forbearance of God, maybe some of those spectators came back. They were convinced that something happened and things kept happening. They didn't quite understand the gravity or the, the, the meaning of, you're gonna eat, I'm, we're going we're gonna, to what? Eat your flesh? Drink your blood. But that came, that came to fruition later. Understanding the memorial feast of the Lord's Supper. Understanding that he was not just a spectacle, but he was the Messiah. That the Messiah wasn't some earthly general who was going to help overtake the world, but he was going to be this spiritual sacrifice. Just like we had sacrifices in the Old Testament. In the old law, under the law of Moses, he was a sacrifice for sins. It connected all together. It just, there were a lot of people, and even the apostles weren't connecting it together. But they knew. And so for my, you know, one of the things I've gleaned from this is, is the, the larger argument that you can see that John's making throughout. You know, the beginning in John chapter 1, he's like, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the outset of John, he's making this argument. He is the Christ. Through not just, through evidence of stories and Jesus' own teaching. So Jesus is clear on who he is and where he came from. And that's, that's a big part of this lesson. He was so clear that those who understood said, I am not going to deviate. Now, there were times when the apostles themselves deviated, but they kept coming back to, no, there's no one else like him. I can look in the old law. I, can, I know the stories I've heard of Elisha, Elijah. I know the stories I've heard of Moses. He's kind of close to Moses. But no one is as bold as he is in saying who he is. I am from heaven. I am the bread of life. But many did not want to hear it then, and many do not want to hear it now. So to whom do they go? 
If we take Paul's, excuse me, Peter's rhetorical question, Lord, to whom are we going to go? Well, if they don't want to hear Jesus, where are they going to go? To me, the New Testament is an interesting story of the unfolding of God's revelation, of, of the arrival of the Messiah, the news of the Messiah, but it's all set on the backdrop of the Old Testament where you can see people interacting with God, how they react to God, whether or not they will listen to God or whether they won't listen to God. And so the Old Testament tells you exactly where people will go. Even when there's overwhelming evidence sitting in front of them that this is the God who shows more power than anyone else, they're still going to go somewhere else when it's convenient for them. The children of Israel. They watch Moses come in, rescue them from Egypt, demonstrate power through the signs, demonstrate the power through the plagues, demonstrate power over the gods of Egypt one by one. We kept bringing this up in in the middle school and junior high class. There's even a god of the frogs in ancient uh Egypt. And he demonstrated the power over the frogs. He demonstrated power over everything. He demonstrated power over the Nile. They gave the whole area. So he saw, they saw that, and then they went, then they said, okay, they saw the Passover, and they acted by faith, it tells us in Hebrews 11, and they put the blood on the post on the side, and they saved their firstborn, while all the other firstborn, even the firstborn of the cattle, died. They walked out they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they say, you brought us out here to die, Moses. Nope. Watch and watch the salvation of the Lord. Watch the salvation of the Lord as he parts the Red Sea and they go through on dry land. They come through. Pharaoh's coming in after him. He kills all of Pharaoh and his, his men. They make it to the base of Sinai. They've seen all of that. It takes them about Two months to get to Sinai. Over a million people. 600,000 men of war. Probably closer to two million people. They have seen a spectacle like no one had seen in hundreds of years. Literally. One man comes in and says, I'm from God. And I'm going to take you out of here. And I'm going to physically deliver you. And I'm going to show demonstration over all elements of your life. And we're going to walk out of here. And they're going to give you all they have on the way out. But at the base of Sinai, they don't want to talk to they don't want to talk to God. It's gotten pretty scary at this point. This this God has power. He's unlike any other God. He goes up, he's gone for 30 days. And then they say, Moses is gone. Aaron, make us a calf. He tells you. So the Old Testament tells us what people will do. Even under, under, the, under the demonstration of overwhelming, they'll go to other gods. We see the king Nebuchadnezzar. We studied recently uh, in Daniel. If you'll turn to Daniel. I always think of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. When he's, but if we'll start in Daniel chapter 2.
He's talking to Belteshazzar. Daniel chapter 2, the king answers and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered and said in the presence of the king, and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. There is a God. And I'm about to tell you. And all these other guys couldn't tell you what was happening. So in that context, then we go over to chapter 4. And we see another example from the Old Testament of what people will do in the, in the presence of overwhelming evidence that there is a God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream and then you tell me the interpretation. No, sorry, we can't, can't do that, king. And we'll genuflect all day, but we can't do that. Then I don't want you. Then Daniel says, there is a God. I'm going to tell you what this dream was, and I'm going to tell you what it means. So that same Nebuchadnezzar, just a couple chapters over, how many years, maybe a few years later, verse 28, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke and said, is this not, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive from you, you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and shall be with the eat of the grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass before you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And in that very hour, Nebuchadnezzar had a long period of humiliation. But what had he done? In the, in the face of overwhelming evidence, he said, it's all me, my accomplishments. I directed that army to go here. We succeeded. I directed the army to go here. I decided while all those are going on, Let's build some real nice temples. Let's build some real nice castle, uh, kingdoms. Let's make Babylon just the, the, the place to go to demonstrate my power. And then we even have the example of the Pharisees themselves. They understood that the authority was in the law. So let's build extra hedges around the law. Let's build rules on top of God's rules to make sure that everybody knows that we are the keepers of the law. And in Matthew 23 is the famous rebuking of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 13 is just an example. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. I am from heaven. I am the bread of life. I know how to get you everlasting life. And I'm telling you, you are not it. Can't be so. He's a sinner. We know we are the keepers of the law. They'll take, they've taken the law and then warped it into some modified version to fit their convenience. So three examples, through other gods, through themselves. There is a striving within man to look for something beyond himself. If we look at Psalm 42, which we have, you know, the beginning of it as part of the song, as the deer. As the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God and for living God. When shall I come up and appear before God? My tears have been my food and day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? I've always looked at this passage as being a, a person who's faithful, yearning for God. But it's also the concept of we look for something beyond ourselves. The Jews had it laid out in the law that they looked for the Messiah. But all man looks for, the, for, for something of salvation. It just depends where they're going to direct their energies. Are they going to direct their energies through their achievements? Through writing what they perceive as wrong and unjust? But when you don't have a standard such as Christ, you're going to define right and wrong as, as being subjective. Your perception of what you want defines what you think is unfair and therefore defines what your cause is. You can see that in the Pharisees. He can't be God because he's not doing what we said was right. He's not doing how we define the law, so he can't be God. But he was God. And the people who are uneducated could see it from the basic teachings. Through their leaders who profess themselves to be wise, through leaders who profess they have found something new, people even try to become a savior in and of themselves. They create some cause that they want. They want to save the earth. They've got to save Mother Earth rather than worry about saving themselves. They've got to save those who are downtrodden or getting an unfair and that the rich are too rich. And they, 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 need, they need to take some of the money from the rich and give it to the poor. They, they have some cause. They have some goal to make themselves immortal, to make themselves some form of salvation, because they don't want to accept that Jesus is the Christ. We have examples of what people will do when they don't want to accept God throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But Peter's point, Lord... Where are we going to go? It's the same question people have been asking forever. Man strives to find somewhere to go for an eternity, for immortality. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There are other religions who try to achieve the same thing. There are other people who take upon causes who they think will achieve them the same thing. But there is no other cause. There is no other Messiah but Christ. And that's what Peter was saying. Where else are we going to go? No one else is going to give us eternal life. And that's why we're here.
Thank you for your attention this morning.